Would you please join with me in prayer? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill each and every one of us with your glory, with your hope, and your love, and your grace, and yes, your truth, so that we might shine your light no matter where we're found. As we continue to walk through these parables of Luke, that you would encourage us, challenge us, and call us forward to follow you, no matter where you lead us, so that we, O oh Lord, would know you and be your followers in our day as the disciples were in theirs. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, I've made a conscientious effort over the past few years to always keep some cash in my pocket. That's increasingly difficult, you know. We just don't carry cash the way we used to, right? But the reason I do that is I am a sucker for a kid in a lemonade stand. You know, in the summertime, these kids set the lemonade stands. I'm stopping. It might be the worst lemonade in the world, but by golly, that kid had the guts to set that and blow that. I'm going to support that. That's a good thing. That's American entrepreneurship. Good on them. Same thing with that kid that shows up selling the Avon Lake baseball shoreman, you know, card. That's good at 10% discounts at hair clips. I don't even use hair clips, you know. I'm a sucker, you know. That's all right. The kid has the guts to get out in the world. I think they should be supported, you know. I love the stories of those kids, and we've seen several. I saw one in the, new, in, the, in the West Press just this past spring of a kid who's 20 years old who started mowing yards at 14. He saved up the income and bought himself some more equipment and kept buying equipment. Now the kid's got a landscaping business, all his own, and it's flourishing, absolutely flourishing. I want him. I just told Max Truax, you, you know, he says he wants to be an engineer. I go, well, make me a lawnmower that's remote. It, you know, all I got to do is just go put it on go and I'll go back and just drink a Coke and watch it mow for me. He goes, okay. I go, I'm counting on you, young man. Uh, that's a good thing. But it's interesting because in Jesus' text today, he turns to the controversial subject once again of money because he knows how dangerous it is for us. Being an entrepreneur is good, but it's not good if we go overboard with it. So I encourage you to turn with me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, because we humans tend to take it to the extreme, don't we? Many in our culture, from evangelicals to New Age spiritualists, are doing their best to serve both God and money. But as Christians, we want to know what Jesus has to say about it. And so he talks about money and hell, more than any other two subjects. So here we are again. But it's not just money. It's all of our lives as we will see today. But we've heard Jesus in the jolting woe in the Sermon on the Plain where he said, Woe to you are rich, for you have received your consolation. Luke 6.24. And then the pungent parable of the rich young fool we saw that in Luke 12 13 to 21 and so today we arrive in the parable of the the dishonest manager chapter 16 he's going to mention it again in the parable next week of the rich man and Lazarus and we're going to see it again 
the rich ruler, chapter 18, and in Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Because Jesus knows the power of money and wealth have over us and speaks to this issue because he knows how forgetful we are. So let's review the parable and let's look at the lessons that he has. The parable is very straightforward. Um, there's really nothing allegorical in it. It has no hidden meaning. It's the story of a fired, dishonest manager. In the ancient world, uh, it isn't like American slavery. This dishonest manager is a slave to the boss, but slaves were given great responsibility. It's indentured servanthood. And it wasn't a bad gig in the ancient world if you had a good boss, if you had a good master. So Jesus is telling this story, and what, what comes to is a final confrontation and he engages in some serious reflection and then comes up with a plan. So the confrontation is this firing. And if you've ever been fired, you know how empty that feeling is. It's awful. And so in Jesus' tale, the terminated man was a scoundrel. He's a weasel. And he deserved what he got. Now, in verse 1, we learn here that Jesus is speaking now to the disciples. He's just completed the parable of the sheep and goats that we did last week and the parable of the prodigal son, which we did in Lent. And now we come, he turns from the crowd and the Pharisees to just his disciples, but the Pharisees are within an earshot. They're hearing this, but he's addressing his followers. So, my friends, he's addressing his disciples. This is the home team speech right here for us as we seek to follow him. And so he says in verse 2, the boss doesn't waste any words whatsoever. And he says, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. In today's words, it's clean out your desk, take your personal goods, leave your computer, and Bruno will escort you out in case you have any ideas you're going to come back being postal with us. All right? Even if you're not given to deep thought, being sacked is a cause for reflection. Especially if you're thoroughly white collar and, you know, you don't get finger dirt under your fingernails. This guy is dramatic. He's a drama queen, you know. The thought of manual labor was totally unacceptable. And he couldn't bring himself to beg, for after all, in Ecclesiasticus, the Apocrypha, it says, it is better to die than to beg. He's of that culture. So verses 3 and 4 kind of are melodramatic, like days of our lives. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he comes up with this plan. It's very shrewd. It's very entrepreneurial. And you can see him high-fiving the people in the air. I got it. I know what I'll do. And in order to just get a sense of how clever this is, we need to understand the ancient Near Eastern culture of the Jewish world in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's no such thing as principle and interest, all right? So they would hide the business interest by putting it in the loan. Uh, 
so the principle was included in the interest. It was not unknown in the ancient world as much as 100% interest on profitable commodities. So the manager, according to common accepted business practice, was making, making such, you know, shaky loans just like everyone else. And so thus he has the solution. So he summons the debtors one by one. And he asks them, verse 4 and 5, how much do you owe my master? First one says, I owe him a hundred measures of oil. Friends, a hundred measures of oil is a year's income. <laughs> this is a lot of money. All right? He said, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. The truth is the debtor actually owed probably about 50 measures of oil. So either... See, the person doesn't realize that he's been sacked, but he's still representing the manager. So he's lying through his teeth, all right? And either he's pocketing the other 50%, or, or he's just saying, just write down 50. And he's thinking, oh, what? That's, what? that's so generous. I only owe. So he'll be ingratiated to the dishonest manager. We're not sure w which one they are, but either way... Uh, it's pretty shrewd. And it's dishonest. The other 50 measures were the manager's commission, it seems. Then he said in another, verse 7, and how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. So he wrote off, wrote off 20% right there. And, you know, wheat is a less inflationary commodity. So the manager did this with each one of his master's debtors. So when the unemployed manager would show up over the years and make his rounds, they would remember him. How generous he was. And how creatively rascal-like this is. So as the disciples listened, you know, you're a good Jew. You're thinking, well, he, this guy's going to get his, right? Jesus is going to take this story and talk about how the crook is going to get his due. Imagine their surprise and imagine their laughter when Jesus says in the first half of verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You people in business get this. You know, we've all had someone take us for something when they've been shrewd. And you're like, well, good on you. <laughs> you got me. It won't happen again. But, you know, that's for... Got to respect you for that one. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. He didn't approve of the behavior at all. But he commended the dishonest entrepreneur for his being one sharp cookie. And then he couches the three lessons here under this banner. Second half of verse 8, 8b. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, look, this guy faced reality, and he used all his creativity, all his energy, all his intellect to come up with this plan, which is better than what my people do in God's kingdom for God's glory. Hmm? If only we Christians would give as much attention to the things that concern eternity 
like the world does concerning their worldly business, if only we would be spiritually shrewd as the corrupt manager was in his temporal pursuits. Okay? And then he gives us three lessons in how we can. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He gives us three lessons in how God's people can be spiritually shrewd. Number one, make friends by the use of your resources. Verse 9, Jesus went on, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Just who are these friends? You know, that, that's a controversy in theological circles. Some believe it's God because oftentimes in ancient Jewish culture, they couldn't use the name God in writing, so God is referred to as the plural. Could also be people who have been spiritually fed by one's wealth. The, you know, I think it's a combination of both, quite frankly. And it's a great picture, no matter which one you believe, or both. God, his angels, people that you've influenced by your giving of your resources, of your time, your talent, your treasure, and your possessions for his glory, greeting and leading a faithful believer into eternity with a great thank you for all you did. St. Ambrose said, The bosoms of the poor, the houses of widows, the mouths of children are the barns which last forever. So it's inescapably clear here that our wealth and possessions are to be used to win eternal friends. That's the proper use of what we have. We must give generously for the furtherance of the gospel. If we're not doing so, we're not making proper use of all that God has given us. It's an intensely spiritual matter. We must also use our possessions um, to gain eternal friends. It's not just enough to give our money. Sometimes it's easier to give our money. Just cut them a check. It's much harder to invite that crotchety neighbor into your home for dinner. I've been saying it all summer. The gospel comes with a house key. I borrowed that from Rosaria Butterfield. You know, hey. Are we using our homes to be a blessing to our neighbors? Are we using our, taking our coworkers out to lunch or coffee? Are we letting people borrow our truck? If you've got a pickup, anybody who owns a pickup truck knows this is true. If you have it, you need to loan it because people will need it, you know? Um, are we willing to do that because they're not ours? Are we letting the Holy Spirit touch us in that area as well? Because one thing's for sure, our worldly wealth will go somewhere, but it won't come with us. Eventually, one of the, one of the saddest things my mom remembers when my dad died, all his belongings were in a box. She thought to herself, you know, this is all I have left of him right now. <laughs> no. We can't take it with us. The only wealth that will endure is that which is invested in others for the sake of Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, is the use of our money bringing us closer to God? And have we used our both our, our wealth and our possessions for the glory of God to make gain eternal friends? Friends which some will go before us and will welcome us into heaven, says Jesus. That's lesson number one, to be shrewd for this kingdom. 
Second lesson to be shrewd is to use our money to gain true riches, verses 10 through 12. They're a unit that we must be trustworthy with it. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Some neuter this text just mentioning verse 10. You know, namely, if you're faithful in the small things, you'll be faith, God will give you faithfulness in the big things, which is certainly true. But given what Jesus is saying here in verses 11 and 12, as a unit, he's talking about all of our money, everything we own. It means, verse 11 means that if you've not been faithful with money, which is unrighteous wealth, God will not entrust you with the true spiritual riches. You want to be faithful when you're sharing the gospel and evangelism? Be faithful in your money. You want to be faithful in your study of the word and growing in prayer? Be faithful with your money. You want to be faithful in the care of others and pastoral care? Be faithful with your money. In the little bit you may have. You want to be faithful in the oversight of his church? Be faithful in your money. One of the great things about going through the process in the Anglican Diocese of Pittsburgh is that Bishop Duncan asked me for my budget. Had some classmates who say, they shouldn't know your budget. I said, uh, yeah, he should. <laughs> I had to make sure I had to account for how I was, how me and Kimmy were spending our money. Because you can't be a lover of money and, and wear this uniform. You can't. It'll discredit the gospel. Many of you, frankly, this is, this is next to sexuality, it's the biggest barrier for guys that are pastors and women. You might remember this past February, the broadcast on Moody Radio, Walk in the Word, suddenly just dropped off the face of the planet. Just dropped. Pastor James McDonald, Vertical Church. Some of you guys had read and heard him. Good, peep, good preacher. He was awesome. Harvest Bible Chapter. The board discovered that for years he'd been developing a Ponzi scheme with the church's money and making millions, millions. Nobody ever saw it. Among other things he did, and all of a sudden he, he was removed. He should have been. Some Christian leaders cultivate the impression of generosity and yet they give a pittance. So Jesus is clear. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor on vestry, your equipping ministry team, you're leading people in God's word, no matter where you are, we're to be faithful. And if you've been faithful in a little, he'll entrust you with much. We're merely stewards, my friends. Everything that we own, that we think we own, is not ours, it's God's. Because we're going home. Luther writes it this way. Therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no other way than a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host. And he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so, he would also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus, the life of the Christian is only a lodging for the night, 
since we have here no continuing city, but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. Thank you, Martin. That's good stuff. So, my friends, our use of our money and spirituality are inseparably bound together. The sooner we realize that, the better it is for our souls. The last lesson that Jesus gives so we can be shrewd in our spiritual matters is to be faithful with our money. Therefore, God will entrust us with true spiritual riches. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either we will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is radical. There's no middle ground. If we're devoted to money, we will despise God. You know, New Agers don't have this tension. <laughs> you know, they, they just, God, self, money are all lumped together, and they don't have this struggle, but we do. Because we feel the tension that the duty of the Lord calls us to and the tension of living in this world and the pressures of daily life. And with all this talk of money, please allow me to qualify this. We all go through times when material focus is needed. Um, you, you have to buy a new car because the old one broke down. You have to buy a home. You have to redecorate. You have to remodel. You have to manage your investments in your retirement fund. Of course you do. We live in a material world which requires attention. If you've been following the Sherman family this summer, you know we had a fire on the 4th of July. It burned up the laminate, and Kimmy and I just made the decision, you know what, hardwood floor is a little better. And it'll last a little longer. So we got a 100-year guaranteed floor. I think it'll outlast me. You know? It was a material concern. I don't worship that floor. It's a nice floor, you know. But I had to take care of it, just like you do. It's not a sin to take care of the things you need, okay. All, also, the possession of wealth, even great wealth, doesn't make a person materialistic. It does mean that we're more prone to it, though, when we have it. Jesus does say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I've known very wealthy people who lived very well and were not materialistic at all. But I think we need to have a perspective of our Nigerian friend, Bishop Juwan. You know, he spent a good two weeks with us a few years back. And he did tell me, he goes, you know, you Americans are rich. I go, I know, I know. You are wealthy. So this application is relevant to all of us. Having said this, I'm sure that while as a group we all would subscribe to the truth, if we cannot serve both God and money, we're really good at it. Perhaps we're the best in the world. And, and some may be so good that we think we're serving only God, but we're not. So often we're failures, and we can tell by what you talk about at home, when it's just you and your spouse. What do you guys talk about the most? Is it your home? Is it your material? Is it your stuff? 
How about when you talk to your friends? Have you seen my blank? Let me show you blank. I think Jesus is just saying, be on guard. Be on guard. Okay? Just don't think he's condemning here. Let's just be on guard. Again, so Jesus is just being forthright with his disciples. Number one, make friends through the use of your money and your possessions. Two, be faithful with your money because if you are, he will entrust you with true spiritual riches. And three, you can't serve both. It's impossible. Don't try. Therefore, wherever you're challenged in this area, take it back to the Lord. He calls us to be shrewd in these spiritual matters. He calls us to surrender all of our lives, the way we use our time, the way we are involved in our growth here in the ministry of Christ Church, and also in our possessions and our money. So what are we doing with it? How shrewd and calculated are we with all our wealth so that the people we influence through our giving will welcome us into heaven? First of all, start to pray. Okay? Stewardship 2020, that campaign starts in two months, if you can believe it. I know it's 90 degrees. Hey, just start praying about it now as a couple, as a family. And young people, you can too. If you're a teenager and you want, your, you want to be a good steward of what you have, just like those kids who develop landscaping, you're bringing in some money. That money's not yours. It's the Lord's. Start to give now. You'll never find it an easier time to give than you are when you're young. And establish that habit soon when you're young. Also, however, we've started our Forward in Faith campaign, the capital campaign, in order to purchase this or some other building. We have 18 pledges in. We need 98 more. <laughs> okay? So if you need a form because you lost that form, please get your pledge in so the vestry and the capital campaign team can know how much we need to raise because this or some other similar building will need to come available for us to fit in. Okay? Um, I'm reminded of the Church of Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Once they walked away from, the, they walked away from their church in 1995. They didn't go into their building until 18 years later. Now, I'm not on cruise control, all right? We're trying to push anchor, you know? Um, you can't put, if they don't want to sell yet, they don't want to sell. So we're developing a plan B. Come to the annual meeting. I will tell you about it in January. You know, if you want to talk about it, I'll talk to you about it. You know, we're looking at other properties too. But until then, we need to raise it. So make a pledge. Start to live into it. Give sacrificially. And I know there's some, I've, I've had some of our older parishioners say, well, I'm never going to see it, so I'm not going to give to it. I had a few people say that to me. Um, I would remind anybody who's thinking like that, what if you were a Jew exiled in Persia? The temple had been destroyed. And there's this prophet named Zechariah who comes, and the word of the Lord came to him and said, take from the exiles, and he, then he names them all, 
and go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halim, to Abijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Some of those people who lived in Babylon would never see it. And they were called to build it, to give for the building of the temple. So please, I may never see it. (laughs) I mean, if it takes 18 more years, guys, sorry, I'm going to (laughs) retire. You know? I don't know. But we're looking, we're praying, we're searching. Give to that, please. Carl Henry, in closing, was the great evangelical leader of Christianity today back in the mid-20th century. Great mind. Dr. Henry was asked this question talking about the affluence of the American church. This question was, what kind of crippling effects has this had and what can we do to remedy that? Carl Henry said these words, I don't think that God despises the rich. In fact... He gives riches to us. What he does despise is the misuse of them, and he rewards stewardship. Even Christian missions owe a great debt to the consecrated and often sacrificial philanthropy of well-to-do Christian leaders. What we need to do is enlarge the vision and burden of those to whom God has given much so that they understanding that they have an opportunity that is rare in the history of Christianity to substantially advance the way of Jesus Christ. Our giving must be matched by the sharing of all that we have for the well-being and the refreshment of God's people and for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ all across the West Shore, thus the world. Showing that we've totally surrendered (laughs) because there's one who truly did surrender to the Father. He was rich and became poor for our sake so that we might be rich in him. And therefore, by doing so, we, like the disciples, might change the world. May it be so among us as we entrust and be shrewd for him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful word which reminds us that you're building a temple not made of stones, with the faithful followers of Jesus Christ here at Christ Church. And Lord, we we know that there's a building out there somewhere, if it's not this one. We pray it would be this one. And we pray, Lord, above that, in the process, we would put first things first. That we would love you. Be in your presence each and every day. Serve our neighbors where we live, work, and play. And invest in your kingdom. So that, Lord the investment would bear great yields for years to come because of what you've done in and through us through the shrewdness 
spiritually that you've placed in us by the Holy Spirit. We can't do it in our own strength, Holy Spirit. And I pray that wherever we need to be challenged in this area, Lord, speak your grace and truth into our lives. Where we need to be encouraged with gentleness, Lord. We pray you would do that as well. And in so by doing, you be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.